Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, government doesn't seem to be able to solve the Caledonia crisis. So residents are having a protest. The Ontario Hospital Association say facilities are close to a critical stage when it comes to ICU patients. More restrictions are on the way. And Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star sheds some light on the Barry and Honey Sherman case. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. COVID-19 sucks. But you knew that because the Prime Minister said so. Keep smiling behind that mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's... Scott Thompson! Yeah. 1210, good afternoon. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that. You can find uh, the written version of the commentary waiting for you on the website. Send us a note there too. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. As well, don't forget about Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Jump into the conversation there. You'll find the commentary there as well. Another big day. We certainly know, and anybody that's lived around this part of the world for uh, any length of time has known that there's an ongoing situation, land disputes, uh, in regard to uh, the Canadian government and Six Nations. Caledonia residents, uh, too familiar with all of that. And, of course, uh, another latest standoff, which continues, uh, despite what happened with Douglas Creek years ago. It doesn't seem like a lot of uh, progress has been made, uh, despite a government that said... This is one of the uh, priorities for it. it, yet nothing seems to move forward. Well, a Caledonia resident is planning to protest and uh, asking you for help to push the federal governments to do something about these land claim standoffs. It's not about taking sides. It's about bringing both sides together and including the government to have someone down here to get this stuff moving forward. Uh, at the end of the day, this town has been crippled. Uh, the Six Nations have been crippled. Nobody knows uh, what to do, where to go, how to make this uh, all work. And definitely this is an area that needs some special attention. So if, if, if it's this government that can't do it, who can? So, uh, you know, I think we're waiting for uh, many to walk the walk as well as just talk the talk in this uh, federal government and get somebody down here to try to bring all of the sides together. And there are more than two in order to make this all work. Let's bring in Kim Smiley Wiley, real estate broker who lives one street over from the barricade and is one of the administrators of the Facebook group called Caledonia and Six Nations Matter. And Kim is with us now. Kim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So first of all, what are you planning? Let's get that out there. So we're doing a protest on Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Argyle Street Barricade. And what is the purpose of it? What's the message you're trying to send? So we're our group is not about who's right and who's wrong and what's been going on and the whole entire situation. We are totally wanting to find out where the federal government is in this, where the Six Nations Confederacy is in this, where is everybody? Like, all they have to do is get to the table. It doesn't seem like such a hard thing if you think of it in simplicity terms, yet it's been going on for hundreds of years, and Caledonia is, unfortunately, the collateral damage, and... It's affecting so many businesses and personal lives. So who is in this group? Who, who would this represent? Right. Mike Henderson is the founder. He asked me to come on board and give him a hand with a lot of the admin stuff. So I've been doing a lot of the organization of it all. There are um, in the group, within the group, we have people from Six Nations. We have people from Caledonia that are in this. And how many more are coming? We don't know. We've put out the word as much as we can, and we're hoping for a really great turnout on Saturday. So how did this all get started? How did this all manifest itself? Well, uh, Mike, in the end, he just said, you know, enough is enough. We have got to come to the table here. I mean, Caledonians are, we're fed up. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's yeah. five blockades now. We're trying to get around town properly, 
Um, we don't want to upset anybody. And there's businesses that are, oh, never mind, you know, all these these months and months, nine months of COVID affecting businesses. Now we've got five months of the standoff as well. And it's not just affecting the Caledonia businesses. Please know that Six Nations is getting hit hard. It's both sides that are just, it's a mess. And we need this rectified 100%. We don't need a little Band-Aid solution on it again, like it happened in 2006 when DCE went nuts. We, you know, we don't want another Band-Aid. We want this fixed properly once and for all so that we don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, what is the site like now? What is the town like now? Uh, those that would not or have not set foot in town for a while, what, what is it like? Give us, describe it for us. Well, we're all getting used to it, which is not good. Yeah. You know, if you are driving to Hagersville, well, we're like, okay, it's going to take an extra 20 minutes to go up to York, to go over the bridge. And we're all putting these this extra time limits on, on our days now. It's not good that we're getting used to this. We shouldn't be getting used to it. And But the people who are commuting to work back and forth, like the extra gas expense, time expense, and when there's an accident, it, it just stops everything. Like these roads, all the back roads are usually really good to take. And now everything's just so busy. Why don't you think it has been settled yet? Why don't despite, I despite where, Despite what has happened, we all remember Douglas Creek and such. Why hasn't? Why don't you think this has been settled? So you're you're asking on my own opinion, and we've always tried to keep this out of this actual uh, protest happening. But I believe it's it hasn't been settled because of like, there's something not right here. If if one side was completely right, then it would be done. If the other side was completely right, it would be done. Mm, Obviously, it's not right. There are problems here. So. I mean, really simply, they're arguing and we need to come down and like mom and dad need to come to the table and have a talk and they need to figure this out because this has just gone way over what it needs to. This should have been settled in 2006. Yeah, yeah. Many thought it would be, that's for sure. Oh, we all um, are, are, you know, and again, this is, you know, my mild observations from outside looking in through the whole Caledonia thing. Uh, again, back 15 years ago when, when this happened with Douglas Creek. Um, I think a lot of people think there's two groups here. There's the indigenous community and there's the government. And there's not. There's several groups here. And that only adds to the complexity of this issue. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. S- several groups. Um, but all, everybody always says that it's the indigenous community against the government or the government against the indigenous community, and that is oversimplifying it more than we can ever describe. It's yeah, it's, it's a few different groups in here, and from where I sit, that has been the problem, is that it's very hard to appease everyone in those groups. It, it is, obviously. I mean, Six Nations, so many things have happened to them over the years um, with so many things being imposed on them and changes that they were forced to do and things that were not agreed upon by them as a whole entire entity. And when you force things on people that never should have been forced upon, you know, you're going to create rifts. And when rifts happen with people who were originally here, and we're not treating them properly, well, there's something there, you know, to be discussed and to be figured out. Now, I don't know, you know, was everything done properly or not? Like, I don't know, because I wasn't there. This is way back, all of our people, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They're they're all gone now. But just because they're gone doesn't mean it's not our problem. Yeah. We need to figure this out together. And And it's all about coming together. How concerned are you because you're holding a demonstration during a pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. We are demanding masks no matter what. We are going to be keeping apart from one another. I really, really hope that people do stay apart from each other. It is so critical right now. We definitely don't want this to be any type of of a, of a spreader situation whatsoever. Is this the first time that a neutral group has tried to tried to attempt something like this, bringing, you, you know, the two sides together from the town perspective? Um, I think they tried to do something in 2006, like yeah. the town came, but it didn't go over too well. 
So I'm what really hoping this is going to be good. <laughs> well, again, well, why do you think it will be different this time? Well, you know, we're coming together. Um, you know, we have, yeah. we've, we've had, uh, Mike and I have had meetings with uh, people from Six Nations, and, and it has been a wonderful meeting. And since then, we've been talking and just really getting along. And that's what it's about, like figuring out, okay, you know, they want to come to the table just as bad as we do. So this isn't just about, you know, the, the, the Confederacy over there and the federal government. It's about the people. The people of Six Nations, they want this done. This is affecting yeah. their lives just as much as it's affecting our lives in yeah. Caledonia. So, like, we just want to live in peace and solidarity and, and just get along together and, you know, have them over for coffee. Like, this is how it was way back when, and so much has changed in Caledonia. It's affected the kids in school and how they treat each other. Um, it's affected kids at work. My daughter's work, when this first started, said, please call us when you get home to make sure you get home safe. Hmm. That's crazy. My, my son is uh, 16 years old, and his hours were cut down at the beginning because uh, he works over at theirs. And, yeah. you know, they were affected, so some of their hours got, got cut down. You know, it's like everything. These are just younger people getting affected, never mind all the adults in 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 both communities there yeah it's it's polarizing oh yeah it, it is polarizing that's a good word absolutely uh officials on board with this um who again you talked about bringing both sides together it's townsfolk it's it's those from six nations as well a- any other officials involved we've contacted many and not one is coming and that is screaming volumes at us. And that's why we need you, the news, and everybody else to help and get the word out. Not what about local, what about local officials and such? No, none want to come. Now there's a, there, there's a lot of, um, tension with our local officials. And, um, word I did get back from them is if I come, it will probably create more of a problem for you. And you don't need that at this event. Wow. which I, I respect and I understand. But I sure wish it wasn't like that because it shouldn't be. Scott, it should be good that our elected officials should be able to come out to this kind of stuff and feel yeah. safe and yeah. feel secure. This is nuts that they can't even come out because they don't feel safe, secure, that it's not going to turn into a, a show about them. But it's going like, you know, we don't want them to feel targeted about all this. So here you are, you're trying to have a, a peaceful uh, protest demonstration, a neutral demonstration, trying to get the government, federal governments to, federal government to come in and, and bring these sides together and, and listen to everybody's point of view. And as I mentioned, there's way more than two. Um, uh, that being said, uh, are you concerned that uh, those that perhaps uh, have uh, created more of uh, uh, a situation with escalating violence. Um, are you concerned it does move in that direction? I hope not. Have you have you touched on all of these groups within? Yeah, uh, I've been. Six oh Nations? yeah, I've spoken yeah. with Skylar Williams. They mm-hmm. are with us one hundred percent. They uh, so much. Um, his whole entire view upon this is yes, let's get this fixed. He wants to go home to his family. Yeah, everybody wants it fixed. Like, nobody knows what the solution you know, is. Yeah. Don't think that all these people who are sitting on, on all the land um, want to be there. It's cold out. Uh, they don't yeah. have proper housing with proper insulation and stuff. It's cold. When that huge storm hit, they got hit hard. And, you know, you don't think they want to be home in their homes with their, with their spouses and loved ones and their kids? Sure they do. Have you, know? you notified uh, police on any of this and, oh, and told absolutely. them? Oh, okay. yeah. is keeping in close contact with me. In fact, almost every day right now. Right. And what is their, what is their thought? What have they said about this? You know what? So supportive. It has been amazing. Um, the, the comment that was made to me was, well, this is a protest that is well needed. And they are going to be there um, with, with the support completely, um, watching everything, making sure that, you know, there's no bad apples in the group. And if they are, remove them right away. Because, you know, we're going to have some speakers there. And the last thing we want is any racial slurs happening, yeah, anybody yeah. screaming at anybody, you know. Sure. And no word on the federal government from this on any representative or anything. No, nothing. Yeah. I have 
contacted and emailed so many, and yeah. I haven't even got a reply email. All right, give us the details again, Kim, real quick, where we end. Is there a website or a Facebook site we can find more information on? Yeah, the Facebook site is called uh, Caledonia and Six Nations Matter. If you go to the events tab, you can see the actual events, and you can reply if you'd like to come. And it's on Saturday at 3 p.m. at the Argyle Street Blockade. All right, Kim Smiley Wiley's been with us, real estate broker, lives a street over from the barricade, and one of the administrators of the Facebook group called Caledonia and Six Nations Matter. And uh, my goodness, it's taking the citizens of uh, both of these uh, uh, towns, nations to, to, to make this happen and to get uh, government to listen and try to broker some sort of deal. The people are asking for help. Here's hoping the government that, that sold truth and reconciliation as a way into Ottawa will come to their help. Uh, Kim, good luck with all of this. We're all looking for a solution. Good luck. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This uh, from the Canadian Press, the Ontario Hospital Association says the province has hit a critical mark of 150 COVID-19 patients in intensive care units. Earlier this month, uh, earlier this month, medical experts advising the government noted that figure uh, would mark a point where Ontario hospitals have to start thinking about canceling surgeries. The CEO of the Hospital Association says all regions are reporting increased admission. Uh, the premier said yesterday that further restrictions are coming in virus hotspots because of hospitals reaching capacity. Uh, no word yet on what the details are. It looks like Toronto, Peel, and York for sure, or if there's any more uh, involved on that. Obviously, we'll find out a little later on this afternoon in about a half an hour's time, uh, or perhaps uh, tomorrow to make that announcement. All right, let's bring in uh, the Ontario Hospital Association. Obviously, uh, concerned about all of this, the executive director of the Ontario, or sorry, Sorry, um, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my organizations here. From the Ontario Health Coalition, the executive director, let's bring in Natalie Mayra, and she is with us now. Natalie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Natalie, are you there? I'm here. Okay, uh, Natalie, thanks for taking the time. Uh, we appreciate this. So your thoughts on where we are and uh, this new information coming out that uh, – uh, obviously, the uh, Ontario Hospital Association is saying we're nearing that critical point. New restrictions on the way. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, uh, things are looking very, very serious across the health system. Um, I was just looking at the numbers last night. So both in hospitals and in long-term care, uh, the situation is getting increasingly serious in hospitals there's still is some space but uh but they but uh, you know the tipping point of one 150 um patients covid patients in icu is a very serious one to cross uh and uh and the concern is that when there's no more icu space left that there is no way to save the lives of people and they you know choices ethical choices about who gets um, access to, you know, the specialized care and equipment um, will have to be made. That is a terrible situation. And uh, obviously, measures have to be taken to stem the tide of COVID-19 in this province. And it is spreading, Scott, in a very scary way at this point. And I really think here too, as well, Natalie, that, um, that, that some are thinking that because this does not affect me, because the majority of the people who do get this do recover, that it's not a big deal. But we're completely forgetting about our health and hospital systems and that the fact that there are still uh, a number of people that do get severely ill, that do require ICU uh, a treatment and such, and do take up hospital beds, therefore putting much stress on the uh, on the system, whether you're in a car accident, you've got a broken leg, or whether you, you know you, you need cancer surgery, or have a heart attack, or what have you. And I think that the public has been looking at this like, well, you know, it's not that bad, not thinking that, but no, you're overloading the system, and that creates an issue for everyone over and above COVID-19. Yeah, I, t- I do think that's true, very true. And I also think so yeah, there are knock-on effects, right? What you know, when the COVID-19 patients take up all of the remaining ICU room, all other patients, those who require any type of surgery or are in any kind of emergency um, level uh, of care need, uh, will you know 
it will be, uh, as I say, an ethical, horrible judgment for physicians about who actually gets access to that care and who doesn't. Um, But also, I think that at this point, the numbers are kind of mind-boggling. You know, I just think, and there have been so many months of them, that it's hard to kind of cut through. And I also think because all businesses are open and everyone's working, you know, who can, if they have work at this point, um, that they're out and about. And it's not very real. Like, it's not like, you know, in, in first yeah. wave in the United States, we were seeing patients on ventilators and talking before they were intubated and, you know, uh, and then dying, you know, right in front of our eyes. We haven't seen that, but it is happening. It's just that we don't publicize things in that way in Canada. So much is not our culture. And um, and the people who are dying in long-term care are dying shut away in the homes. Uh, you know, the people aren't seeing them, but they are dying by the dozens every single day at this point. Uh, and it is very, very serious. So, uh, again, it is, uh, going back to my point, it's not the threat that this, the message is not the threat that this will take you and necessarily wipe you and your family and everyone you know out. Most will recover. What no one is getting is the threat to the hospital system, and that's how it affects everybody. By, you know, I mean, if you take yeah. 30% of the population and all of a sudden shove them into a hospital, guess what? No more hospital space if there's even enough for that. So uh, I think that's where we're, where we're, this isn't impacting us or it's, it, the message is not getting through and the message is there. It's just, it's not getting through. And I think people are thinking, well, you know, that person got it and they're fine. And, you know, and, and they're right. Most people recover from this, but that's not the issue. The issue is for those that don't and who, who are severely ill, they end up taking up space, which in, 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 as a result of, uh, threatens the health of everyone else. That's right. Very soon, hospitals are going to need to start shutting down clinics and surgeries and, you know, elective procedures and even, you know, other procedures in order to uh, preserve space for um, those who are the most critically ill and and dying um, and try and save their lives. And that's, you know, that's why the hospitals are warning that they've hit this critical juncture and um, that measures need to be taken. I also think that a lot of people, um, you know, there are a number of people who are making choices that are dangerous and that really, you know, younger people get COVID-19. Sometimes they don't have any symptoms at all. And that's what makes it such a sort of silent, deadly virus. But it, within a few weeks of any surge among younger people, uh, like young adults and younger people, it spreads to the 40 plus age group and it's the 50 plus, you know, 40 plus, 50 plus you know, the the death rates start to increase and definitely in the 70 plus age group, I mean, at this point, one in three are dying when they get it. And of course, it makes its way into long-term care homes. So it hits, I mean, it does, all of our individual behavior matters. But I think there's also an issue that the province actually has to support local businesses now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's going to have to be shutdowns. There have to be, there's just no way around it. But people need support to be able to live and come out of this hole. And if we were to do it, um, you know, strategically and with some strengths and recognizing that the virus, just as the virus um, hits people in different age groups and in different uh, demographic groups differently, inequitably, so too do shutdowns and that people on both sides need support. They need support so that we come out of this hole and we're able to uh, recover the best we can. Um, you said strategically. What are you looking for? Obviously, we're hearing tomorrow there's going to be more uh, restrictions uh, put in place. 75% of the new cases are in those hot spots of Toronto, York, and Peel. But but certainly, uh, I'd say Southern Ontario from Oshawa to Hamilton is under that red zone. So what, what do we need, in your opinion, do we need to have happen uh, with this next round of restrictions? Well, we're trying as a health coalition not to sort of usurp the job of epidemiologists. Like, we think it should be based on the science. Um, and, uh, and at this point, I mean, we're seeing very dramatic spread right from Niagara through um, the entire Hamilton area, the GTA, you know, that yeah. area. Ottawa now has spread through eastern Ontario. 
Um, there are outbreaks now increasing all across the south, like uh, right down to Windsor, so from border to border, and um, new outbreaks even as far as Sudbury and Thunder Bay at this point, and case numbers are going up. So across the board, there is a spread. It may be that different measures need to be taken in different parts of Ontario, um, and, you know, it should really follow um, the evidence and the recommendations of the epidemiologists and the virologists and the, you know, internal medicine special, you know, the, the uh, experts who have tracked what has happened around the world and what's worked and what hasn't worked. I mean, at this point, we do have, you know, eight, nine months of evidence um, and we need to follow the evidence. Um, at this point, what about your thoughts on, sorry. Natalie, your thoughts on Ottawa and what a job they have done? Because at one time they were right behind Peel uh, and now have, you know, we virtually don't even really talk about them now when we re- release new numbers. How do you explain them doing so well, especially being up against Quebec? I think, um, I mean, that there are still very significant numbers in Ottawa and the outbreaks yeah. in the long-term care homes, which is what I'm looking at most closely, have are totally out of control. There's a number of homes there that have more than 150 people, residents and staff infected, like, you know, it's just marching through and people are dying. You know, it's terrible. Um, And then there are also very significant numbers of outbreaks in schools and so on, and it's spread through the region. So they're doing, like, better in, in total numbers, but also testing is limited and behind uh, and so it's not totally cleared what picture we have of what's going on. But um, I don't think that there's any sort of very clear lesson that we can hold. I don't think it's a success at this point. Natalie Mayra has been with us, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition and the Ontario Hospital Association, uh, saying that we are approaching a critical stage when it comes to COVID-19 in ICU patients. Natalie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for everything you're doing. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We remember uh, the the confusion and, uh, and the various information that came out the day that Barry and Honey Sherman died, the week that they came out. Now newly released documents detail the day that they were found and the actions by police. Joining us now is Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star. And the column today, quote, someone has killed my clients. Newly released documents detail the day Barry and Honey Sherman were found dead and what police did after. To talk more about all of this, as I mentioned, from the star investigative reporter, Kevin Donovan. Kevin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you you and all your listeners are doing well as well. So this is quite a, thank you for that, this is quite a capturing headline. Uh, let's start with that. Uh, let's start with this headline and explain. Yeah, so for the last three years, I have uh, been in court on behalf of the Star arguing to get uh, police documents uh, released. Uh, These are uh, documents related to search warrants and production orders. And uh, finally, this week, we were successful in getting the uh, redacted versions of the first four of 12 batches of what they call judicial authorization. These are things that go before a a judge uh, requesting access to phones, GPS, all sorts of things, uh, searching place, searching houses, stuff like that. And so in it, uh, we have the first uh, two months of the police investigation laid out. And what I, the reason we were so interested in this is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the police, we, there were all these sources uh, from the police department telling reporters that, that it was a murder-suicide. And so here we get some uh, information about that. It, it seems like the pathologist uh, for, the, uh, for the police uh, just was unable to come to a conclusion. Uh, but you had at the same time everybody that the police were talking to saying this is not a murder-suicide, it must be a double murder, and still the police were looking into things like was Barry Sherman having an affair? Uh, was his business struggling so much that he decided to kill his wife and kill himself? So so we get a lot of uh, light shed on that. And then the other part of it... Uh, uh, just relates to uh, quite a gripping account of, of what happened that day when the bodies were discovered. Now, why did the murder-suicide uh, story continue to flow, even though it was just one of the other options? Why did this one stick? Why did why were in the first uh, initial uh, stages of this investigation was that the line that stood out? I believe uh, there's a lot of these documents. 
that are, are still redacted and we're pushing for more to be unsealed. I believe that at the end of the day, we will learn that there was a specific reason why the police were pursuing this. I think my own theory is that somebody told the police something that set them down the road because right. the police were faced with this uh, this image of two people seated. Uh, you know, Barry's 75, she's 70. They're seated, they're clothed. Uh, they have uh, belts around their neck holding them uh, upright. But from what I understand now from these documents and from my previous reporting, and I mean, I wrote a book on this, The Billionaire Murders, what I've discovered is that, that there, everybody who looked at the scene said, well, you know, somebody's killed them because um, physically it's just not possible to to uh, asphyxiate yourself that way. So I think I think there's some piece we're still missing. You'll see in you see in these documents that that uh, police are interviewing so many people, and there's some people who say, "Oh yeah, Barry made a comment one time to Honey, uh, or sorry, Honey made a comment to Barry that uh, uh, a gift had arrived. It must be from one of your affairs." Well, hmm. everybody who knew Barry Sherman knew that his his only affair was with his business. He, you know, he had uh, uh, five children, his four kids, and then Apotex, the generic firm that he found in a multi-billion-dollar industry. Uh, and so, uh, friends today who've read this have called me friends of the Shermans and said, "Well, there's just no way <laughs> that wasn't going on." But police kept pursuing it, and they also spent a lot of time obtaining their medical records uh, to see if there was any hint of depression, uh, any you know, or a life-threatening disease, perhaps, that would cause them to take their own lives. And they didn't find it. Uh, and so it took about seven weeks before the police finally came out and said, this is a double murder. But we don't know what sort of information tipped them off to initially go down that road uh, of murder-suicide. And you have to wonder, and, and obviously just speculation here, but could it be, have been, Donovan, that that information was supplied as some sort of distraction? Here, no, yeah, this is I, what happened. I, Don't look here. I, I think that is possible. It also may be at the end of the day that the pathologist, Dr. Michael Pickup, who is, was relatively junior compared to the, the family pathologist who, who eventually did, when I say family pathologist, the family hired a, a quite an experienced right. pathologist to do a second set of autopsies. Uh, the first one just couldn't come to a conclusion. Uh, he just was not willing to say it, that it's anything. He just said it could be this. And so, so then you see in the documents, and I found this quite interesting, detectives scouring the, the Sherman records to see if they could find a, what they called a goodbye letter from, from yeah. Barry and Honey or a suicide note. And in my opinion, uh, and I'm just somebody watching this un, unfold, they lost a lot of key time in this because they were not, it's quite clear in this, in the two months of documents I have, they're not looking for a suspect. There, there's no... There are no interviews with people uh, about things that uh, could have led to to somebody killing them. There, there's nothing. There's just this focus on the murder-suicide. Um, what about various family members, some cooperating, some not? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I, I have had, uh, I won't disclose who, but I, I am in contact with uh, over the last three years with, with uh, some of the family members. And in these documents, uh, so you're looking at, I'm looking at a hundred page document times four. And in it, there uh, is one section called the family. And there are eight interviews. Some of them you can tell are quite short. Some of them are quite long, but all but one of them is completely blacked out. We don't know. We're not told the name of the person interviewed, what day they were interviewed. I'm assuming some of the children were interviewed if the police were doing their job. The only name that's revealed is, is uh, uh, Honey's uh, sister and best friend, Mary Sheckman. So they've decided that it's okay to, uh, and, and Mary's just totally distraught by this, uh, quite understandably. I mean, she and Honey were, were so close. And they've, they've allowed us to see what, what she had to say about her sister. But the other seven people, and let's assume some of them are the children, it's all redacted. So, so in a couple of weeks, I'll be back in court arguing to have that unsealed, and I think I'll be successful. Um, are, are you concerned that we may never find the answer here, or are you are you convinced that someday we will? No, I, I think we will. And uh, a couple of days ago, before this story, uh, we published uh, a couple of stories in the Star. One uh, from 
part of these court documents that we had earlier received. And we've learned that the police have gone overseas to a country, one of uh, the countries that Canada has a, a legal treaty with to obtain information, basically do a search warrant somewhere else. And that has happened. And then quite recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, for the first time in boy, over a year and a half, the police actually did a search warrant in, in Canada. Uh, and they've confirmed to me that it was in Ontario. Let's assume it was somewhere in the GTA. And uh, so they've done a search warrant and two production orders very recently. And uh, the, the police detective uh, who, was the, who was on the case has, has told us during this court proceeding uh, that it, the last few weeks have been very busy for them. So, I mean, who knows? It could all amount to nothing, but it does seem like there's some, some activity on the case, which would lead, lead to, uh, to a charge. As you mentioned, you're going to continue to try to file for more information. What about the investigation? At one point, and I'm not sure it was ever declared cold in any way, but it certainly seemed that nothing was moving. Uh, is that the case now? Yeah, and as far as nothing was moving, I mean, I only know what I can get from the police yeah. through this court process. They're always saying it's ongoing, and police, the sure. Toronto police, will say that for 50 years, it's ongoing. That's just what they say. Uh, but but what I noticed when I was back before the pandemic, the last time I was in court, which was a year ago, uh, the police at that time, it did seem that they hadn't done much. They hadn't been many search warrants, uh, hadn't been many new interviews. And so I suspect that uh, that has changed. The other thing about this investigation, the police won't say if they have a, a suspect or a person of interest, but I, they have said that they are going through a massive amount of data. And this is, is what I believe to be uh, uh, locational information for people uh, that they are interested in. And I believe they do have a person of interest. They just won't say it. And so this data, I think, is helping them build a case. That, that's what I think is going on right now. Kevin Donovan is with us, Chief Investigative Reporter with the Toronto Star with the latest on the Barry and Honey Sherman case. You can read his latest in the Toronto Star. Kevin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great work. Keep it up. Thanks for uh, reading and uh, listening. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's cybersecurity agency has named China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea as the greatest strategic threats to Canadian infrastructure. That's property, elections, uh, energy systems, that sort of thing. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, a long time no talk to Scott. How you been? I'm doing great, uh, considering we're in the middle of a uh, global pandemic. Let's talk about these threats. What kind of threats are we talking about, Phil? Well, interestingly, so this, this notice or this report comes from CSE, or Communication Security Establishment. And, and full disclosure, I used to work there from uh, 1983 to 2001. Very different organization back then to what it is now. They've uh, certainly shifted their focus, and they are, in fact, Canada's you know cyber command, if you will. It's an interesting article that's come out. It, it, it both says a lot and, and doesn't say a lot. Um, so first and foremost, the countries you named, like surprise, 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 China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Where have we heard that quartet before, right? Yeah. Uh, they're always top of the news. They do talk an awful lot about their ability to target, you know, medical and, and, and pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, during the pandemic to try to steal information. They also talk about disinformation campaigns that they have tried to engage in. And we know all about this from the U.S. election with the Russians, et cetera, et cetera, the Chinese, Iranians, et cetera. You know, in many ways, Scott, it's kind of more of the same of things we've been hearing for quite some time, which leads me to wonder why this report came out now. But I will tip my hat to CSE because the CSE that I used to work for never said anything. So at least they're, 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 they're poning up to the public. And that's a good thing, given they're a very talented bunch of people. Why do you think that is happening now? We have certainly seen the Prime Minister speak out a lot more aggressively than he has in the past, just in the last couple of weeks. Any relation to that? Maybe, but from what I, and I do talk to some of my former friends at CSE, what I, my understanding, Scott, is that the organization wants to be a little more forthcoming with Canadians, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, as I said, they, they are recognized as the authority in Canada when it comes to the threats of this nature. And given that everybody and his dog is putting out threat assessments and commenting, you know, how many how many times do you hear a national security expert weighing in on something? I think that they want to set the record straight. 
And given that they're the ones monitoring the traffic, they're the ones that are thwarting the attacks, which, by the way, from statistics that I've seen, are on the order of like tens of millions of attacks a day on Canadian infrastructure, uh, you know, online infrastructure. I think they just want they want to show Canadians uh, exactly what's what's out there. I hope that, that people don't um, interpret this as, you know, putting the fear of God in the people. I just mm-hmm. see it as a, a talented bunch of professionals doing what Canadians want them to do, protect our cybersecurity, and let us know, you know, what they're worried about on a daily basis. Um, you, you, you mentioned uh, they want to get the message straight. Does that mean there's different messaging? Uh, is government doing enough to be aggressively following this? Mm, I, probably not. Um, certainly my understanding is that when it comes to cyber, I, I, and I'll tell you, Scott, I, I'm not a cyber specialist. I, but, you know, I'm a terrorism guy, not a cyber guy. I, I think that we are getting mixed messages from government officials who, let's face it, are not experts in this regard. Politicians, ministers, deputy ministers are not experts. And therefore, I think Canadians may be a little confused in terms of what's happening out there. So again, I think that when the number one agency that is tasked with maintaining our the integrity of our cyber systems comes out with it. And I understand this is the second report they've issued in the last little while. I think this is a really good move, and I hope that it gets kind of the the attention and the coverage that it, that it deserves. Because, as I said, you know, you go on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, you get a bazillion. I mean, a threat of threats every day. I mean, I I still read this stuff, and it, it pains me to see how many you know authoritative assessments there are on X, Y, or Z. So that it's coming from the, the mouth of COC, this is indeed a good thing. Is this resonating with the Canadian government? And, and, and Well, I think it is resonating with Canadians to a certain degree because we're certainly seeing attitudes change uh, in regard to uh, China in, in various polling and such. And, and clearly Canadians aren't happy. Uh, the government doesn't seem to be as critical. Is that changing? I sincerely hope so. So let, let me let me tell you and your listeners something, Scott. One of my concerns, and I, I worked 32 years in intelligence in Canada, one of the things that I used to worry about was that Canada, the Canadian government rather, didn't really have the same kind of deep intelligence culture that the Americans and then the Brits and other allies like the Australians do. We often found that what we were telling the government in terms of advice, you know, the information that we were collecting and analyzing was either just either dismissed or not paid attention to. My understanding is that that's getting better. And, and don't get me wrong, there certainly were officials in my day who couldn't wait to get intelligence briefings from CSIS and CSC, et cetera. But my overall impression was that there was, wasn't a greater appreciation for what the intelligence agencies can do. As I said, from what I'm hearing from my ex-colleagues, it might be getting slightly better, but we still see on the China file, you raised China, which is a really good example, you know, successive governments, the Trudeau government, the Harper government, seem to ignore the fact that we were warning about Chinese activities because there was money to be made. Yeah. Right? I mean, China's not our friend, and they've never been our friend. So let's stop pretending that they're our friend. And, you know, I think that, you know, when you see dollar signs in your eyes, I think people are, are saying, well, you know, pat you on your head and say, well, thank you for the information. Now, now get lost so I can get on with the, the government of or the business of government. I hope messages like this are resonating and because and they should, because, you know, CSC doesn't do this willy-nilly. Um, this is an organization when I joined way back in 1983, didn't exist officially in Canada. I was surprised when I got my, my initial briefing as to what, I'm, what are we doing for a living. The fact that they are taking the effort to, to tell Canadians in an authoritative manner what they're seeing, what they're concerned about, uh, should, I think, make some, some eyes open and some people pay attention. At least I hope so. I, so I want to be cautiously optimistic here, Scott, in terms of the message that's being given and whether that's being received. Let's hope the government gets from, from here on in. What about when it comes to Huawei and 5G? Uh, the government's still not making a decision there, despite what the other five eyes have said. Uh, there's pressure to get this done in 30 days. Is this a threat in your mind? Oh, absolutely. And again, you know, I'm not a specialist on, you know, on Huawei and cyber, but you know, all the five eyes partners, with the, with the curious exception of GCHQ in the United Kingdom, have said there's no way in hell we're allowing Huawei near our 5G networks. And it's not just because you know, we want, you know, Western companies or Canadian companies to benefit from the from this particular development. But Huawei is a Chinese firm and, and all firms in Chinese report to the Chinese government. There's, there's no real private sector, per se, in China like there is in the Western world. So anyone who thinks that Huawei, if they get a, a toehold into our telecommunications system, 
will not be forced or coerced by the government of Xi Jinping to use the China's advantage, uh, you know, is, is dreaming in technicolor. Let's let's wake up and let's throw cold water in our faces here and say, look, this is what China is doing. Do we really want them to be at the core of our, you know, our 5G network? And, and the other Five Eyes partners have said categorically, no. Why Canada's dragging its feet? Um, I really have no idea. I will I will just say, Scott, that you know, in my time at CSIS, and I didn't work China, I worked terrorism, as, as I said, the message was pretty consistent about what we thought what China was doing. So we told governments what we saw. And as I said, I think in many cases, it was just saying, well, okay, thanks very much. Now, you know, we'll go on with what we're doing. Again, let's just hope that times have changed and that these messages are going to resonate with the Canadian government. I've talked to a tech guy this week and he thought that there and he said that there was no way that we could progress with 5G without China involved in some way. Your thoughts? I, I think that's complete garbage. Again, I mean, you know, I don't understand the technical aspects of 5G, but my understanding is that there's other firms like, you know, the Finnish Nokia. Uh, there are other companies out there that are Western companies that can maybe they don't they don't they're not quite at the same stage as Huawei right now. But I'm pretty sure that they could they could ramp up pretty quickly. And let's face it, Scott, you know, we had here with Northern Telecom, which, by the way, the Chinese stole their technology way back in the 1990s. Yeah. You know, we, we have the capability in this country. Now, again, are we at the point now where we can roll it out tomorrow? Probably not. But it wouldn't take us very long to do so. And so I think we have to make this decision. Do we want to opt for the easy the easy way out, which is taking Huawei? It's there. It's pro- they're probably going to undercut the price as well because they don't have to make money, right? They're a Chinese state firm. Or do you want to do the right thing and wait for Western companies, which we can trust to a much greater extent, to do it well, and that we won't have these um, suspicions that they're using the technology to spy and to steal our technology? Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, talking about Canada's cybersecurity agency naming China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea as the greatest strategic threats. Phil, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many are talking about the winter months, especially because we are in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, Of course, in the summer, life was a little bit more easier as we could get out and about. And as things are starting to close up and as we're moving indoors, we're certainly starting to see uh, numbers climb up a little bit. And something to be concerned of right the way across the country. So many have talked about winter and how winter is, how we're going to cope with winter in the midst of a global pandemic. Already seeing a rush on uh, winter sporting uh, goods, whether it's uh, cross-country skis or toboggans or that sort of thing, uh, as people are trying to look for uh, alternative ways uh, to get outside and, and uh, get some exercise, both for physical and mental health. So what is the winter going to look like coming up this year? Uh, joining us now is Anthony Farnell, meteorologist with Global News. He set out a prognostication, and we'll hear what he has to say. Anthony, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. It's been a busy day talking winter when uh, it feels a whole lot like spring outside. So uh, I'm okay with that. Yeah, we've been pretty lucky this spring. We've had some gorgeous weather. And or sorry, fall, you not spring. This spring, this, this <laughs> fall, yeah. Uh, maybe we just skipped over winter. Because, yeah, yeah. You uh, know what, Anthony? Maybe we shouldn't even talk about winter. I don't think I'm qualified right now. Okay, so uh, the fall has been quite nice. We got some quite some warm weather there for a while. Yeah, we did. Uh, record-breaking warmth. Remember all those days above 20 degrees? Yeah. Today, 13, 14, tomorrow again. So uh, this is definitely the opposite of the last couple of years where November turned wintry and it, it stuck around. So uh, already we're off to a different start, and I think it continues as far as mild weather even into the month of December. So when does winter finally take hold? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen slowly, and this is kind of the way the fall has been, this back and forth where you get mild days, you get a taste, just a, a dusting or a couple centimeters of snow, and then it melts again. And that's kind of what I see for the next three or four weeks, slowly stepping into winter. Uh, there is at least some signs that we get a week of colder, snowier weather in December, and then what I am thinking right now is that January and February definitely turned stormy and uh, colder, but we're going to be still dealing with this back and forth. So uh, a lot of snow expected this winter, but not necessarily the cold to go with it. That's not bad. Um, what about as we get to the holiday season, everybody's going to start be pressuring you for a white Christmas and such. Is there any way you can give us any sort of indication for that? 
Well, it's, it's really hard. It is uh, yeah. less than 50% of the years now around Hamilton that end up with a white winter. So it's almost a coin flip or, or even uh, the odds are against us with global warming. And uh, I, I don't see those odds changing too much until we get two weeks uh, ahead of time and then we'll have a better idea. But there is hope. There is hope that this pattern flips right around the holidays and then we end up with one or two big snowstorms. Everybody's happy waking up Christmas morning. Uh, and then, well, I, I think January, February, as I mentioned, turn uh, quite stormy with potential for ice storms, too. I'm, I'm looking at those later this winter as well. Uh, I was just going to bring that up. Obviously, you were saying once uh, the winter does kick, uh, kick in after Christmas, we will see the snowfall and, and perhaps milder temperatures. Does that create the risk of more ice storms? Yeah, I think it does. So uh, my Canada-wide forecast that I, I issued early this morning has the cold predominantly out west. And when I talk cold, I talk in relation to normal. So below seasonal temperatures out west. And then the further east you go, Atlantic Canada is looking uh, quite mild this winter. So right over Ontario is that battleground. You get some systems, uh, the Alberta Clippers that are going to be coming in, bringing snow and then those Colorado lows, the Texas lows coming up. So we seem to be at, at the crosshairs January, February for some very active weather. And, and yeah, that means uh, higher than normal ice storm potential with any of these. And this is a La Nina winter, and that's a typical pattern for that. So what about the East Coast? Because the last few winters, man, they've just been getting nailed. Uh, all kinds of snow. Do you see the same thing for them? Not really. I have a near seasonal snowfall or even a bit below normal. Now, they typically get more snow there than, than say, Hamilton. But uh, we have the storm track going more over the Appalachian. So as it heads inland from the coast, that puts us more in that snow sweet spot here in Ontario. So perhaps more rain further east and more snow around us and then just cold and snowy further west. Anything out of the ordinary stand out to you on these models this year? Well, the the, the, out, of the out of the ordinary is just that the models are, are kind of like all of us in 2020, in no agreement whatsoever. So <laughs> we're, we're using what we call climatology, where you look at La Niñas and, and other patterns with similar uh, conditions in November and then and kind of look ahead months from there. So computer models, I, I wish they cooperated a bit more, but... Uh, the American model has warmth taking over, the European as well, Canadians the opposite. So um, that's, I guess, the big uncertainty is that what, is this a, a forecast that's going to come true or, or maybe are we going to see something completely different and uh, 2020 is going to throw one more punch at us. Why are the models out of sync this time out? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with climate change. They're, yeah. they're having a tough time finding cold air on these weather maps. Now, they, the cold is still around. It's maybe more isolated, but when and where it occurs, it happens to be extreme, and we can break records on the cold end. So that is still going to be around somewhere in Canada this winter. And then once we find out where that is on the map, I'm sure meteorologists and, and computer models are going to have a much better time trying to forecast it from there. All right, uh, looking at this weekend, as you mentioned, a nice day today, mild weather for a bit, and then it gets cold, right? It gets colder. The uh, average high is only about 5 degrees right now, so when you're talking 12 to 14, we're very lucky with the end of the week. Now, Saturday is uh, still a pretty nice day, some sunshine. Sunday, we may get a taste of winter as uh, snow changes to rain, and then it disappears as it warms back up again next week. Anthony Farnell has been with us, meteorologist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this, talking about uh, the winter that is on the way. Anthony, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.